HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm Lou Bank. And I'm Greg Benson. And this is an ad for Ancestral Agave Syrup, the critically acclaimed award-winning syrup that helps gringo bartenders better make margaritas, wait, wait, negronis, Lou, hold and up, hold up, wait. Old Are you just... Fashions? This is how you start your podcast. What? It's not an ad for Ancestral Agave Syrup. Well, of course it is. I'm just cutting costs by not paying writers to make something new. I'm just using an old script. You pay writers? Is that some kind of jab? No, I'm just saying what, that... What What are you saying? Well, look, we've got this amazing syrup that's made in an ancestral manner, cooked down from the sap of the agave, harvested the way these families would to make pulque. It's a quality product. It deserves yeah, a quality yeah. presentation. Yeah, okay, okay, hang on. <clears throat> ancestral agave syrup is made by real families following traditional methods. Unlike the industrial Blue Weber syrup you get everywhere else, Ancestral is cooked down from Aguamiel, harvested from Salmiana in Hidalgo, Mexico. It is the grade A Vermont maple to the sticky diner syrup you've been using for your cocktails. Ingredients matter, both in how your cocktail tastes and how you treat the earth. Ancestral is better for both. Is that good? Uh, sure. Or maybe confusing instead of cheesy. Uh, look, just visit AncestralAgave.com to learn more and to order your world-class agave syrup today. And we'll call that a wrap. Catch you next ad, Greg.
Uh, Hasta Pronto? Ancestral Agave Syrup. Available online at ancestralagave.org and wherever Greg and Lou are able to coerce store owners into carrying it. I'm Lou Bank. And I'm Jay. And wait, just Jay? Jay West? Ah, well, sure, okay. I'll take it. Okay. And this is Agave Road Trip, the critically acclaimed <laughs> award-winning podcast that helps Gringex bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. I love it. And it loves you, Jay. So I reached out to you because... You know, this is a constant uh, annoyance to me. And I even I I, I did a, an episode kind of related to this uh, a couple of years ago with Chava. Um, but I, I, I think it's getting worse and worse. And the it in this case is food journalism or drinks journalism. Yeah, just journalism in general. <laughs> well, no, not journalism in general. I mean, look, if 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 we could probably do six or seven episodes just about journalism in general, right? Like, I yeah. I really I view, and I guess this is the point to the episode, Jay, is I think journalism is so important, and I see, you know, bad journalism is bad, like it's damaging, right? But good journalism. I think is the thing that protects us, um, protects us, protects us from our own behavior, protects us from uh, corruption in politics. Uh, it, it protects us. And, you know, when I see when I see a lack of professionalism in food journalism and it just kind of waved off as well, we're just writing about food and drinks. What does it really matter? <laughs> it drives me absolutely nuts. Now, you know, there there are a few ways to look at this, right? This is a multi-billion dollar industry, and there should be reliable places for people who work in that industry, who own restaurants, who own bars, who um, who, who wait tables, who um, who work within this, a reliable source for information to help them make their decisions. Yeah? Yeah, I'm, I agree with you there. Okay. Okay. And then, you know, then I see things like, well, there's this this article that popped up in Food and Wine uh, about a month ago, back in December. Uh, and the author, and this is just sort of a throwaway line. I'm going to start with the, the low-hanging fruit and work my way up. So the, the, the title of the article is, there are additives in most tequilas, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And when I say that title... Because I see a smile on your face, you're probably thinking I'm going to come at it from uh, from the the left side. But I'm coming at it from the right side, actually. Because the quote, like, hey, whether or not you you like additives, I don't care. But the thing, the quote, the quote in the article that set me off was all these tequila options were just. She listed a bunch of uh, the author listed a bunch of. I'm not going to say journalists listed a bunch of uh, tequilas. That all these tequila options were distilled from 100% blue Weber agave grown in the highlands of Jalisco, Mexico, as all tequila certified by the CRT must be. <laughs> so, did you realize that, Jay? 
Yeah, it's, that's, uh, it's a little problematic. The CRT requires that all tequila come from not only Jalisco, but the highlands of Jalisco and be made with 100% blue Weber agave. I, uh, I think what you would say there is that they had an author and not a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, you know, this is just the kind of stuff that I think, you know, there's there's no bar that's going to be looking at, I shouldn't say no bar, most bars that actually serve tequila are going to know that this is just inaccurate. And the, the public should be able to rely on this information. But that that to me isn't nearly as maddening. As the piece that I uh, that I, I I don't even think I shared it with you. I think you and I actually stumbled upon it, and we're both pulling our hair out. Uh, on <laughs> I seven... think, yeah, 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 yeah. The seven fifty one. That's exactly yeah. Right. Seven fifty daily. Yeah. So seven fifty daily ran this piece uh, also back in December. I think it was was it December? I think it was uh, no, it was actually September. It was it was a <laughs> little bit. It was it was published in the fall, but I. Didn't start to really see it get circulated until everyone was like kind of thinking about their their Q4 numbers. Oh, they're thinking about their Q4 numbers. They need something to relate to. And so they pull up this uh, this this piece from the industry standard 750 daily that uh, that talks about whiskey. And there's so much contradictory stuff right on the face of it that even like look i'm i'm a guy who looks at numbers a lot right and so just looking at these numbers i could see that this could not be accurate right so let's uh, let's pull up some of that one of the quotes in here that drove me nuts was scotch is still king in terms of market share for whiskey <laughs> what do you what do you think uh, in terms of your experience does that sound accurate to you jay i mean it it sounds accurate if you only consider some markets, right? Like it's it's uh it's not quite they they present it very broadly as if it's number two in, in all the world. And we we later figure out that maybe that's that's not quite correct. But you know, at its face, you're like, wait, Scotch, hmm, I'm not so sure. Right. Yeah, they they even list in here that it's only number two in sales, and then you know, right. So if it's number two in sales and American whiskey is number one, so is, is, and it's literally almost twice as much as scotch, is scotch still king? Right. Or, and, is, it, and or is it a prince? The only way, <laughs> that's a good alliteration, you know, you. unless they go by volume, right? But that doesn't make sense, at least domestically, because typically scotch is more expensive than American whiskey. So if you go by volume or sales it seems like maybe maybe number two isn't quite the you know the right place yeah and and then when you look at their uh, fastest growing categories by revenue well that's american whiskey at 10.5 percent then irish whiskey at 6.9 percent then blended whiskey at 6.8 percent so then i'm again asking how is scotch king and then when you look at uh, sorry on-premise whiskey sales by category it's 53% American whiskey, 24% Canadian whiskey, 17% Irish, 6% scotch. Like what what exactly I don't get any of these numbers. And then it gets even more confusing when you start talking flavored whiskey. Oh yeah. Yeah, that and before we get into the flavored one, my favorite one was that they I I think maybe this is where the market share came from, but like 809 distilleries in the United States making whiskey as opposed to 145 in Scotland. And like, to me, that's like, that's like such a huge disparate, uh, like 
what an unreal number. Like it, it's just so many, but like going down, yeah, top five flavored whiskeys. There's there's well, no well, doubt. No, no, no. It. Hang on. No, no, no. Let's not go. Like I want to get back to. I want to make sure I understand the point you're making. Right. Which is, are you saying that there are roughly eight times as many distilleries in the USA as there are in Scotland? And therefore, when you're looking at these numbers, you need to reflect like the the per distillery capacity. Well, you know, it kind of comes comes with 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 the turf. Right. Is that like if American whiskey, like eight hundred nine distilleries, either, you know, so many of these are making just a little bit of whiskey as opposed to, you know, for Scotland to have one sixth I'm, I'm doing quick math here now it's about 20 percent, right so if if if, if scotland has 20 percent of the number of distilleries of america yet they're number mm-hmm. two in market share those 105 distilleries have to be just absolutely just churning out whiskey and just an incredible rate and, and maybe they are but you know that to me is just like i always assumed that the american producers were just blowing the pants off of everyone else uh, but really, it turns out that if Scotland had anywhere near the amount of distilleries as us, it would probably dwarf dwarf at least what the Americans are producing because the 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 number of distilleries is just so so oblong. Like I I thought it'd be more more one to one. Yeah, but you know, you also said uh, uh, number two in market share, and in fact, it's number two in sales, but they they are number four in market share, which makes no sense whatsoever. Again, right, right. So it gets even more interesting <laughs> if you just go by raw number. I guess yeah, number king in terms of so yeah, so it's king in terms of market share, despite having twenty percent of the number of distilleries of America. Yet it's number two in sales. I'm like those yeah. those just don't really jive. Wait, or is it? Because now I'm reading another quote of this same infographic. I guess it should be a misinfographic saying uh, Scotch whiskey has the largest market share of the whiskey category worldwide. Right. And I think, you know, and kind of what I had fired out was like, I, I feel like this infographic chooses at points to remark on like the global whiskey industry. And then at other points chooses to only remark on the American spirits kind of marketplace and it flip flops back and forth based on what they want to show or basically what they think is most interesting to show. Like, I don't want to present it as uh, misinformation, but I'll maybe call it a some information. It's there's some information here, but you know, it's not compiled in a way that like you can look at it and be like, Oh, okay. Like I kind of understand except the, except the cinnamon. You're like, Oh, okay. That's fireball. (laughs) Right. Right. Trademarking prevented us from saying fireball, but that's fireball. We found the fireball line item. Wait, is Fireball the only cinnamon one? Is that all of those? So when they list all that cinnamon flavored uh, whiskey sale, is that all Fireball? I mean, so there is Jack Daniels Fire, and there used to be a major competitor in Aftershock, I think it was, which was like the the early, you know, or the mid 2010s or whatever. But I mean, at this point in day and age, Fireball is king of cinnamon whiskey. And we kind of joke that Fireball is you know, the house that built everything else that's going on within Sazerac. But yeah, Fireball is the big one. There's there's really no competitor anywhere near the size of Fireball. Okay. Well, you know, I, I know your your comfort zone is whiskey, but I'm going to pull you now into uh, into my comfort zone, which is agave spirits, right? Bring so, it on. Yeah. So I was... Um, I was reading this uh, uh, this article in Liquor.com recently that was written by you know a friend of mine, but she wrote something uh, and with and didn't leave any support for it. So what you're, I'm just going to read you the line. All right. Some agave products now considered traditional resulted from the these early experiments with additives. Tequila almondrado, an almond flavored tequila based liqueur 
grew out of some of the early attempts at barrel aging, while the addition of animal fats and fruits to the distillate, do you notice I just got much more serious? <laughs> the addition of animal fats and fruits to the distillate, originally intended to hide flaws, helped form a new category of spirits called pechugas. Oh, that's interesting. That's one way to phrase it. And, you know, look, I so I I I um, I, I tagged her post on uh, I think it was Facebook um, okay. saying, hey, do you, like that's a bold statement. Do you do you have anything to support this claim? And she was quoting uh, um, uh, a guy who's an investigative journalist named Ted Genoways, who's written a book about uh, tequila. Uh, and he says that he's going to be including the evidence in that book. But I'm thinking, how can a place called Liquor.com make a statement like this, force everybody to go read a book to support the statement? Right. And, and you know, and then I think, so what's what's the purpose? What's the purpose of um, journalism again? And to me, it really is that last line of defense for us. And if I'm a bartender and somebody comes into uh, to my bar you know, this is a, this was actually a story that came up uh, on, oh, I think on Reddit <laughs> about three years ago. I think it was two, <laughs> three years ago. There was a story on Reddit where there was a chef at a New York restaurant who was offended to see that the bar was serving pechugas because he felt like pechugas were part of his cultural heritage and they should not be just commercially sold. Right. Sure. Yeah. And uh, and somebody reading this article would say, oh, no, 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 pechugas. Well, that actually just came out of people making tequila trying to hide their flaws. Right. Yeah. That I mean, that immediately flips pechuga on its head. Right. Which is like a celebratory. It came out of celebratory practice. Right. It was it was something special that you made in small quantities that, you know, every every family or producer had their I don't want to call it their recipe, but like they had their style of producing pechuga. But, uh, you know under the optic of maybe this was just the worst distillate. It seems kind of interesting that you would you would serve it in celebration or, or anything like that. It, it doesn't jive. And especially because Pachuca is usually more expensive. And if you want to cover up your flaws and sell it mass market, <laughs> you're usually trying to go on the other side of the value, the value scale. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I'll acknowledge that uh, I, I think probably both things are true, Right. Like there's there's no doubt that there are a bunch of commercial pechugas on the market without question. Right. And to your point, oh, you could yeah. charge more for them, add like five dollars of chicken and fruit and suddenly you've got a hundred and twenty five dollar bottle. Sure. Um, but uh, I have no doubt that there are families who have been for multiple generations making it as this celebratory thing, this thing that's part of their cultural heritage. Um, and and I think I think if you're going to claim only one of these things is true. And I'm also open to the idea that there's more ways that people approach Pachuga. Um, but if you're going to make that kind of claim, support it. Otherwise, you're mis you're misleading your readers. You know, there's this... Did you see the Drinks International report that also just recently came out? The I have report? not yet, no. Are you familiar with Drinks International? I, you know, I can't say that I am. I don't... It doesn't come across my desk. God, I saw this. Uh, I saw this thing posted online so many places, where uh, this this report, and it was primarily brands who were celebrating the fact that they were on all of these different top ten lists, right? Okay, okay, okay. Yep. yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, you, you know the things. 
So, uh, so I'm looking at the list, and it says that the number two mezcal in the world is Siete Mysterios. And, you know, I, right, thank you. And I can remember drinking that, I'm going to say it was 10 years ago when I kind of saw that it was starting to build a market, and I haven't really seen it since. Yeah, I would say it, that does not seem like a, I don't want to call it like new or, uh, you know, it doesn't seem present. Like, I can't remember the yeah. last time that I walked into someplace and went, oh, interesting, that's here. That's- yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I, I started doing a little digging, and when I read about Drinks International, it's, uh, I'm going to just quote what they, they, uh, how they describe themselves, which is uh, our portfolio of strong commercial opportunities, powerful independent editorial content, and our certified controlled circulation means that Drinks International is one of the most trusted and respected global drinks journals. So there's that piece of it. And then I'm looking at this brand's report. And okay, well, what does that mean? Like, how did you get to these numbers, right? And if you dig deeply enough, you get to this. The annual brand's report results are the culmination of a survey of 100 bars from around the world, which have been nominated or won international awards. The report offers a picture of the buying habits of the world's best bars. Not only which brands sell best, but also what's trending to indicate the brands that are hot right now. Interesting. Right? And so, you know, so first of all, I think presenting a survey of 100 bars as indicative of where the market is going is 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 i mean it's laughable but it's also misleading right i mean i live in wisconsin and i think there's like a hundred bars between here and the grocery store so that, that's a <laughs> that's like a very small slice of all of the bars out there who probably would have an opinion right and you know and i i, I think if you if you want if you want to present this as exactly that the 100 bars like that should be on the cover. That should be the statement. Yeah. And, yeah. and name and name the bars for God's sake. Because if I'm working, if I own a bar, if I'm if I own one of those hundred bars that's on the two blocks between you and your grocery store in Wisconsin, <laughs> right? Um, and I want to emulate those bars, great. But if I'm literally a guy who's interested in getting into mezcal or tequila or anything that they list in here, the rums, whatever, if I want to bolster my sales, relying on that list, like what does that list even mean to me? Right. And it's it's definitely presented as, as, as more of a encyclopedic, like we tried so many things and here's the top, you know, top X or Y rather like, I don't mind it when places do bartender recommends this. And then you could also kind of tell what kind of bar they go to, right? Because most bars mm-hmm. try and stick within a distributor portfolio or within a certain conglomerate, like the Camparis or the Pernos of the world and stuff. And you kind of can tell from the recommendation. But to bury it at the bottom that, you know, we came to this list by surveying, a, you know, a generally small number of bars that, and and you have no idea who they are, right? Like, is it 99 Death & Co's even... You know, that math is problematic, but like, you know, they would be good to know. Are they all corner bars? Like Wisconsin's all dive bars. Did you, did you canvas a hundred dive bars or did you canvas the top 100 in terms of sales, volume, acclaim, you know, there's, there's a lot of information that would be, would be useful there. 
Yeah. All of which just leads me back to the original point. Well, I guess the original point was that I'm annoyed by these uh, these 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 drinks journalists who aren't actually journalists. Right. But, you know, I, I think that's only relevant to my, to my little uh, little anger monster inside of me. But I think that the more <laughs> relevant piece is, you know, what do you do if you're a, if you if you own a restaurant, you own a bar and you're trying to get information to help improve your your business? Like, right. how do you how do you figure out? what you want to consider adding to your mix and what do you need to add to your mix? Is there anything like, what are you trying to do with your mix? What's what's, is there anything out there that you know of that's a reliable source? You know, it's, it's, it's tricky because a lot of the reports that come out, the first thing I try and do is figure out who does this benefit. And then I usually go and try and find that person and see if, you know, and when I mean person, I mean industry or something, but like, you know, I see it all the time. Uh, Who's it? I think it's Mark Brown who runs or used to be the CEO of Buffalo Trace does a daily drinks digest that's like super interesting. But it's usually mostly like Nielsen index data, which is, uh, you know, pretty neutral. It's just like, hey, we're a company. We gather data and it's mostly centered around like case volumes and stuff like that. But even then I notice because there'll be multiple headlines each day that Someone will be like, oh, you know, beer, beer is crashing. They Bud Bud Light sold 1% less than they used to do. And I'm like, <laughs> does it really like 1% of a huge number is still a huge number. And just because, you know, and what they don't tell you is, oh, but it went up 7% the week before. So like, is it crashing or is it just slightly less meteoric? And we saw this in, in whiskey again, Brown Foreman this year, you know, put out and said, hey, 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 our volume is down 3%, but you know, that's just fine. And everyone that I know was like, oh man, it's crashing. We're going to see Van Winkle on shelves again. Like the market's, it's doing them. <laughs> but it, it went up, it went up just, just tremendously last year. So the fact that it's down 3%, we're still way up over the previous year, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult because you, you want to figure out what the optic is. So I, I, I think that finding more information is valuable. There's not one good source if, if you're like a local bar, but I think it's, it's interesting to you should figure out who's near you. Like, what are the other people purchasing? Like, what what is what are the brands near you? And also, like, is someone being really pushy, right? Like, if a brand is trying to get on every back bar in the area, uh, you know, what's the impetus for that? Or are they maybe just trying to make make the one hundred bars for uh, for for the index there? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, what what comes to my mind is that the only really useful data that I'm seeing in this industry for an individual bar. Um, well, I shouldn't say the only. So the the primary um, useful data is your own data. You know, it makes me wonder how many of these bars and restaurants um, collect their their actual uh, end of month data and use that to project what they they expect they'll sell in the next month in terms of booze. It's a great it's a great idea, and I think that you echo something which I believe right is like data. The best and most relevant data is probably the data you gathered yourself. And that's mm-hmm. typically because it means the only person who's massaged it potentially is you, which is <laughs> which is another big thing with like drinks journalism, right? It's like, was this, you know, how is this data captured? Because if you, I guarantee that if you and I took the same pool of data, even if it was, you know, sports is another great one, right? Like you can give the same data set to a hundred different analysts and everyone will come out with different different parlays and different bets and different expectations and different projections. But like, if you've gathered the data, I think it becomes more important about 
you having the data and looking at your own data rather than going out and getting it. And it can tell you like, you know, are we selling more pachugas or are we selling more espadine? You know, are we are we selling more cocktails? Are we selling more neat bores? And, and, and whether or not your goal is to do either of those things, you can start to gauge whether or not you are effective at it. And if you maybe want to change the behavior of how your bar is doing, or if you just want to double down on the things that are already working. God, you know, that's a really interesting point. If you're the manager of that bar, right, and you're looking at that data and you see, wow, we're, we sell a lot more pachuga than we do uh, tequila. Like what, what is, why are we do? what is that? How'd that happen? Right. That feels to me like, okay, then your next conversation needs to be with your staff because at least somebody, if not multiple somebody's must be, because that's so extraordinary, right. In terms of what you'd expect for numbers that somebody is doing that hands-on selling, mm -hmm. which, right. Which can, can in essence inform how, who you work with at your bar. If there are two people who are doing it and they're having that kind of effect on sales, those are your two most effective salespeople. Those are the ones that you want to start supporting, give them more hours, give them more money, and then try and uh, uh, support them in making those additional sales. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, a good bartender is a good salesperson because mm -hmm. ultimately – uh, you know, most bars I go into, they have a menu and they have things, but there's so many people who say, I don't know, what do you think I should drink? Like, do you have any recommendations? Or like, I like this, you know, what would you recommend instead? And 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 the bartender seat is an incredibly influential seat because it's also a great opportunity. Like if you want to become, you know, a more upscale bar, like, like go find some more expensive SKUs and figure out the education and figure out, you know, why they're compelling to you and why you think you should sell them. But also, you know, how are we going to tell someone who wants, you know, just a $5 shot or something, you know, and, and upsell them into something that's that's actually like like Pachuga, right? Like it's cool. It's got a story. It's got an element. But people people coming off the street typically don't know those things. And especially if they've read some, some information-ish uh, piece that suggests that maybe Pachugas aren't great, like it's also a good opportunity for that bartender to say, no, 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 that's that's not quite correct. And and let me tell you why. And and most importantly, why don't you taste why? Like, does this taste deeply flawed and inexpensive? No. And you know, having that data really is the best opportunity to figure out, you know, your path on that. Yeah, I like that. Now I'm suddenly all like the, the way you brought up that pachuga, now it's got me thinking that I, I want to open a bar somewhere between you and your grocery store. Uh, open a bar. <laughs> and then these these articles that make me angry, I would just cut out the bits and then post them on the wall next to a note that corrects the uh, the incorrect information. I think that's, that's genius. And, you know, and it's hard to right? because like, I don't think that that piece was written to be like, oh man, Pachuga sales in Chicago are up. Like someone take this down a notch. Like let's get a piece in whatever, <laughs> man. You know, right. typically for me, it comes from someone who like not knowing better or thinking that like, oh, I'm going to make a generalization, but like A, who will notice or B, who will care? C, like who could this affect? But like it couldn't be more opposite from the truth. So it, I, I would go in on on a bar named like Fact Checker or something or like, a, you know. Or red, red Line? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> red yeah, mark. Red mark. Red yeah. mark is everywhere. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's a cool idea, especially you know because there's I, I hate to say because like misinformation has become such a such yeah. not a hostile word, but like typically yeah. misinformation means that someone knows that they're trying to get you to believe something that's not true. When when a lot of times misinformation is just ignorance or or maybe laziness or apathy or something. But yeah, yeah. a bar. A bar with fact checking for for spirits would be great because the the whiskey section would be a war zone. Let me tell you that right now. 
And, you know, and, and, and I'll say, I think you're, you're a hundred percent right, Jay, that I, I doubt that, I, I doubt that drinks international, that's a bad one. I, I doubt that the, uh, the folks at uh, 750 daily, right. were intentionally misleading anyone. I think it's just sloppy work, but I don't, again, to get back to the, what I feel is really the importance of journalism. I don't think we can afford to be sloppy. I think, I think a lot about uh, Dan Saladino, who's, you know, whose name I invoke uh, probably second only to Lalo Onless on this <laughs> podcast, right? Uh, but, the, you know, they, I invoke both those names because both of them I admire tremendously. And in Dan's case, here's a guy who's been a food journalist for 25 years, and he spent the bulk of those years, is, and is still doing this, um, trying to help us protect our environment, protect our food sources and our medicinal sources by reporting on food and reporting on how our consumption patterns are putting all of this at risk. And that's, you know, that's some, that's very, very serious. And you can, you can, it's easy to be dismissive of, well, Sieto Mysterios isn't even close to the second best-selling Mezcal brand. But I think it all ties into the same thing. You can make Sieto Mysterios closer to the number two brand, and should it be? Well, let's talk about the consequences of that, right? This is an Espadine from Oaxaca. Well, we're putting all of this environmental pressure on Oaxaca. It seems like a, it seems like an innocuous little thing, but I think the repercussions of the inaccuracy are tremendous. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think, you know, a lot of these lists, too, are either objective or subjective. And so many people take the subjective list as the objective list. And, you know, and mm -hmm. we see that, like you mentioned, everyone's top 10 lists have come out, you know, and there's, you know, to be a brand, you just want to be on a top 10 list. Like I've seen brands be like, I don't know, we were on like Farmer Bob's like top 10. And that's like the, you know, the top, top list of, of Farmer Bob or whatever. But, you know, most, most of the times, like people... People don't have any idea other than like, we're, we're just putting this out there and, and not really considering more beyond that. And, and typically that's what brands are going to use to try and, and boost sales, right? So like if this producer can't support it and we're trying to ram them up to the top of this, this listing because it's a marketing opportunity or something like, you know, that could have repercussions for the producer or for, for the entire supply chain. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's a positive note to end on. <laughs> positive ish it's yeah some information ish yeah yeah there you go okay i think we will call that a wrap then and uh and then wait for all of the hate mail to come in from uh from all of these publications well i mean i, I think the best way to wrap this is is i don't know if you've ever seen the show how i met your mother and this is what i always think about <laughs> not the show not... but the specific scene when i think yeah. about data right is that uh yeah. there's one episode where marshall who's a lawyer is permitted. They give him access to the copy room and he can print anything he wants. And so he uses that to make, uh, it's an opportunity to make graphs. It's a bar chart of his favorite pies and it's a pie chart of his favorite bars. Uh, and, and that's just like, that's the whole joke. But I think it's funny because like when left alone, like you can create a graph for anything. And that's what I think about whenever I see infographs. So, you know, a bar chart of your favorite pies, but yeah, uh, dig into it, figure out where the info is coming from and, you know, Maybe we'll see more uh, Mysterios on, on shelves. Right. Uh, that sounds great. Thanks a lot, Jay. Appreciate the time and the laugh. Yeah, anytime. Okay. Catch you next episode. 
You've been listening to Agave Road Trip, the critically acclaimed award-winning podcast that helps Gring X bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. We're blessed with sound engineering by Roy Sierra and a theme song performed by Gabriel Oliveira and Marco Ricos. Sign up to become a road tripper and listen to more episodes at agaveroadtrip.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. And if you hated it, well, I'm sure you'll let us know that too. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Agave Road Trip. Agave Road Trip is a production of 10 Angry Pit Bulls, Inc. Agave Road Trip is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. To subscribe to the Heritage Radio Newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with Heritage Radio Network on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find Heritage Radio Network at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization using the power of education educational storytelling about food to build a more equitable, resilient food system. Heritage Radio Network couldn't do that without support from listeners like you. Become a part of the world's most innovative community today. Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please join the Heritage Radio Network family by becoming a member. To become a member of the Heritage Radio Network, click on the beating heart of our homepage. Heritage Radio Network can become addictive. Programming you hear on Heritage Radio Network might lead you to eat, drink, and listen to more programming on Heritage Radio Network. If you drink, please do not drink and drive. Drink responsibly. Drive responsibly. Eat responsibly, too. And listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly. To listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly, wear protective earbuds. While wearing protective earbuds, do not drive. Do not walk either. Sit in a comfortable chair. If that comfortable chair has a hard seat, please remember to stretch every 30 minutes. If you stretch every 30 minutes, please stay within your defined stressing capacity. And consult a doctor who specializes in stretching. If you don't have a doctor, maybe Dr. Ryan Acock, the cocktail MD, can help you out. Thanks for listening. Agave Road Trip. Out.